This is an ABC podcast. This is the WA Country Hour with Michelle Stanley on ABC Radio WA. Hello, good to have you along this Friday afternoon, coming to you from the north of the state. And as I like to do, I want to have your attention right across Western Australia, is to bring you to my neck of the woods, up to the north. You'll be up in the Kimberley, where there are some pretty happy pastoralists and fruit and veggie growers with the new Fitzroy Bridge. It's set to open in just a couple of weeks. It's almost a year and... Oh, almost two years ahead of schedule, really. You'll hear about the mammoth effort that's taken before half past 12. You'd also have heard plenty in the years about the boom and bust of the economy in the north, particularly in the Pilbara, you know, the highs of the $2,500 a week rent, $17 for a pint, a wait list of 600 kids for childcare. You might be surprised to hear that the Pilbara is less bust than you think. The growth is actually pretty consistent. The price of a beer and the childcare waitlist certainly is anyway. But the economic impact of the Pilbara on the entire of WA, that's also significant. If you actually think about how does that fit in the broader state economy, if you take Perth out of that and just talk about the eight other regions, the economic heft of the Pilbara, the regional, the regional gross regional product, is greater than the other regions combined. We'll dig into a little bit of the detail shortly. Uh, news, weather and a look at the wool markets before one o'clock today. They've closed up again for the week, so Danny Burkett will run through those details. And if you'd like to get in touch with me this afternoon, you can on the SMS 0448 922604. 7 past 12. Embracing and improving sustainability is a key focus for Australia's meat and livestock industry, according to the head of MLA. Hundreds of people in the red meat industry met in central Victoria yesterday for the Meat and Livestock Australia Conference and AGM. The crowd heard about some of the recent challenges faced by industry and some of the opportunities on offer for the future. MLA Managing Director Jason Strong says environmental sustainability will be the key to the industry's prosperity. It's such an important thing for the community and consumers. There's a lot of unknowns about it as well. And while it's a significant opportunity for our producers, levy payers, the livestock sector, it also creates a fair bit of concern as well. Because of our focus on investing in research and development and marketing for the red meat sector, we've got a, a, an obligation to support the industry but also help them be prepared for what might come next. So investing in how we better understand the sustainability requirements but also opportunities, what are the things that we can do to enhance our production to make us more productive and, and profitable as we go down that path. But also how do we better understand what are the opportunities and challenges. So what are the things that contribute positively to our sustainability and what are the things that give us a challenge and put all that then together in a way that can that producers can then use that and you know, apply it in their businesses. How do you suggest that the sustainability goals balance with profitability? Yeah, so this, it's a real challenge, isn't it, when something comes along that's new that we don't understand that well and it feels like somebody's going to make us do it or do something about that. So trying to find a, the right perspective and then get the right balance about what, what do we do about it. And I think there's some really good examples today about two really key areas of activity. So one is better understanding. So things like the carbon calculator. 
getting information together or having a, a mechanism, which is and there's an on, online calculator that you can find on the MLA site, and that gets you to put in information from your enterprise or your operation, and it helps calculate a carbon footprint for you. That does a few things, so it gives you a bit of a position or a baseline, which is interesting, but probably more important, it, it actually gives you some perspective about the sorts of things that contribute to that. So understanding what those things are, I think that that's, that's really important. That also then leads to, and if I was interested in doing something different, what might I do? What are the things I might be able to shift that would make a difference to that? The other point that was made really well by the panellists is the, you know, this direct connection between productivity and sustainability. We want to be more sustainable and being more productive goes hand in hand with that. How can we be more productive to you know, reduce our cost of production and increase our outputs for the resources that we, we're currently using that actually makes us more sustainable? So being able to make those sorts of connections, so understand better what those inputs are, so trying to demystify a bit of that conversation. Then also, so if you want to do something about it, then being more productive is one of those things, and that, that's certainly got to be a good news piece. Something that's on a lot of producers' minds at the moment is the price of cattle and lambs and sheep. Where do you see this going? Do you think that this is going to be a slow burn until we start getting decent prices again? So it's interesting how we have the connection between prices, you know, market drivers like volume of livestock coming into the system, the weather systems, but then also other things like sustainability, for example. They're always going to stay very connected and in some ways they become more topical when there's lower prices because it's seen potentially as an impost or another cost. Giving people comfort that that's not the case is important. But I also think it's important to, to look at what comes next. So the big drivers on you know, market price are very much the amount of supply, you know, the volume of livestock coming onto the market. And, and we're starting to get through that, that big lump now. We've seen a big shift in some of the market indicators just in the last month. And the broader sentiment has been so negative, which has been this combination of oversupply and the commentary around the weather systems. And you know, we've seen a bit of rain across a whole chunk of eastern Australia you know, the last few days. And hopefully we're, we'll start to see a big shift in the, in the sentiment with the volume sort of reducing and the weather system being a bit more favourable than what other people might have thought. I, I think that change in sentiment will be a, a big relief for a lot of people and you know, good timing you know, leading into Christmas. You know, If we can see a bit of improved weather conditions and some improved prices with the livestock numbers coming off and you know, going to the end of the year with a bit of, bit of momentum with you know, the broader global macro drivers for our industry, there's so much positive in front of us and I think we do get very confronted by what some of the immediate issues are and a shift in that sentiment is going to be incredibly important. That's Jason Strong. He's the Managing Director of Meat and Livestock Australia speaking with Jane McNaughton yesterday in central Victoria at the MLA Updates Conference and the annual general meeting. I wonder what you make of some of those comments coming from Jason Strong. You can get in touch if you'd like to share your thoughts on the SMS 0448 922604. Now, during a Q&A session at that event yesterday, some farmers expressed their anger at the federal government's commitment to phase out live sheep exports from Australia by sea. Australian Livestock Exporters Council Chief Executive Mark Harvey Sutton said the planned phase out affected confidence right across all other sectors of agriculture fact that having a policy like this is impacting confidence in the market right across Australia. The government has been very quick to dismiss this and we know that there are other factors contributing to a price drop but if you have a policy 
hang over your head saying we're going to shut down a proportion of the industry, well, that's not going to help confidence one bit. And we know that. That's a common sense thing to to know. And I think what was very stark today in hearing those questions this morning is that even here, southern Victoria, a prime sheep-producing region that largely goes into the box trade, the live export phase-out is impacting it here as well. So I think uh, it's very important the government takes note of this. So do you think that there's potentially a domino effect that people are concerned about, that it's starting off with the live sheep trade and then it will proceed into other areas of agriculture? The government has been very clear to say they will not touch the live cattle industry, for instance, and they are keen to say that it is just the live sheep industry. But I think what agriculture and all of agriculture is saying, well, this will set a precedent for every industry. If you shut down an industry for political purposes, what is next? Who will be next? Because every industry, every agricultural industry has some form of social licence challenge and our industry has reformed significantly. But what the message it sends is, if you have that challenge and you have reformed, we can shut you down anyway. And that sends a chill down the spine of every agricultural industry. So I can see why people are worried. You mentioned social licence to operate earlier, though. There's also the social licence to operate coming from consumers and the general public. So do you think that the general public's on board with the live sheep trade export? I think people are willing to give it a go. I know the industry has had its challenges, but I think people, when they understand what we actually do, what we achieve, the impact we have on animal welfare in our receiving markets and also the food security we provide to those markets that we send to. And also, I think people understand the fact that those markets we send livestock to, you can't replace that with box product. They will simply import livestock from other countries that do not have the standards that we do. We are the only country in the world that has in-market standards as a requirement to send livestock. I think when people take all that into consideration and they see the impact this is actually going to have on farmers, and we're seeing that right now with that confidence we were talking about before, I think they actually think this will be a negative thing, and it will be. It will negatively impact people, it will negatively impact our economy, and that's not a good thing. Australia Livestock Exporters Council Chief Executive Mark Harvey Sutton there speaking with Jane McNaughton. And on the topic, Leader of the Nationals, David Littleprout, he's also the opposition spokesperson for agriculture. He issued a media release today saying he thinks Labor is keeping the live sheep industry in the dark by refusing to release findings of its independent panel report. David Littleproud says he submitted a freedom of information request to see the 230-page report, but that request was denied. His statement says, I'm incredibly disappointed that Labor sees fit to remain secretive about phasing out the live sheep export trade. If Federal Agriculture Minister Murray Watt is so confident in his decision to phase out the industry, why won't he release details of the report? 16 past 12 on the Country Hour. In just two weeks, vehicles will start rolling across the brand new Fitzroy Crossing Bridge. After estimates, the Kimberley would be waiting until 2025 for the bridge to be completed. It'll open well ahead of schedule on Sunday the 10th of December. CEO of the Western Roads Federation, Cam Dummacy, was pretty pleased to hear the news. Oh, absolutely delighted. You know, um, back in January when it occurred, in the early days they were talking about the bridge not being rebuilt till 2025. So to find here we are, 
within the year, 10th of December, we're up and running again. Uh, it's fantastic news. Absolute credit to Main Roads on this one. Do you know how they pulled it off? Yeah, look, they, they built a uh, – and I'm not a bridge builder. I think, you know, like we discussed off, offline is that everyone's become an amateur bridge builder. We've got our Meccano sets or our Lego sets <laughs> out trying to recreate it. Um, but what they did, technique, was they put a launch platform out, hard-packed it, and they actually put the, the piers in during the dry season. And then they literally built the bridge on this launch platform and were pushing it out across the piers. And at one stage, I think they were consistently holding to about 35 metres every eight days of bridge being built. Absolutely fantastic. And look, full credit to Main Roads for the courage to do it. From my understanding, uh, it's the first time in WA it's been tried. I'm not sure in other parts of Australia, but I, I doubt it. Main Roads, you know, sort of took the, the initiative to try something different and innovative in doing it. And look, here's credit. Great result. Bridge opens on the 10th of December. How much of a relief is this going to be? Oh, look, for truckies, for the community, the businesses of East Kimberleys, it's a massive relief. Um, you know, wet season's coming. Uh, well, I think it's already started. Um, the th- risk of losing those low-level uh, causeway crossings meant that we're back to trucks running through South Australia, back up the middle, back into the East Kimberley. That's hard work on the drivers who are away from their families longer. We're already shorter drivers, so they're away longer from the, from the transport companies. And it's more expensive for the you know, East Kimberley community. Do you think that this absolute kerfuffle of a past 12 months has highlighted something to to both the transport industry and to the broader government? Look, I, you know, we're still hammering away at this. And look, the loss of the Fitzroy Crossing Bridge was iconic. It was right across Australia, right around the world in many ways. But it, it's symbolic of, of the disruptions we're getting to our freight routes, you know, through these weather-induced events. We had the Air Highway um, and the East-West Railway line washed out in 2020. Simultaneously, we lost the north-south rail and road access for about six weeks, connecting Perth and, uh, sorry, Adelaide and uh, Port Augusta. But these are becoming more frequent. We need to really start to get serious about how we build freight resiliency the East Kimberley community and the transport industry have borne the, borne the brunt of the freight disruption caused by uh, the loss of the bridge. But we've got to get a national approach to how we actually be, deal with freight resilience. There's got to be a better way of doing it than what we're doing at the moment. CEO of Western Roads Federation, Cam Dummacy, speaking to Alice Marshall about that news. The Fitzroy, the new Fitzroy Bridge will be open come Sunday the 10th of December, so just two weeks' time. I wonder what difference that will make to you. And where should be focused next for Main Roads? 0448 604. Let me know your thoughts this afternoon. 20 past 12 on the Country Hour, sticking in the north. There's a lot of talk about the Pilbara's boom and bust economy, but these days it's not really the case, according to the chair of the Pilbara Development Commission. This week, South Headland hosted an economic and franchise forum. More than 150 delegates from mining companies, government, small business, they all heard just how significant and consistent the Pilbara's economy has become and also what's next for the region. Former CEO and now chair of the PDC, Terry Hill, says the region has plenty of challenges to overcome, but the future is looking bright. Um, yeah, the economy is pretty incredible, really. Our, our gross regional product now has continued to grow steadily since 2008. 
and a lot of people think about the Pilbara economy as a boom-bust economy, but if you look at the data, and data is king in today's world, and, and the Commission, one of its roles is to bring together regional data and, and talk about the region, but we've seen very significant growth um, in our gross regional product. It's now, at about, now heading towards $80 billion annually. Uh, if you actually think about how does that fit in the broader state economy, if you take Perth out of that and just talk about the eight other regions, the economic heft of the Pilbara, the regional, the regional gross regional product, is greater than the other regions combined. So it's it's had steady growth, and I think that's an important message. We also see that in exports, actually. So the other figure I like to talk about, Michelle, is the exports that come out of the Pilbara, and you'd be aware. Um, that iron ore and LNG make up a big part of that, but we've seen lithium um, more recently get into the billions of dollars of exports and we're seeing more and more growth across a whole range of the resource, a real diversification of the resource sector. But um, you know, when you do the numbers, uh, we make up more than 78% of Western Australia's exports and stunningly the one region of the Pilbara makes up a third of the nation's merchandise exports. It's pretty, when you think about it, the scale of Australia um, where the Pilbara sits, it's economic. And that growth, again, when you look at the graphs, it's been solid and consistent. And it's amazing to see that figure. I think you said that if the Pilbara was a country, it would yeah. be 75th, its economy would be the 75th um, biggest in the world, which yeah. is a huge statement, particularly given the population yeah. in this particular part of the world. Um, how have you seen a change? You've been in the Pilbara with the Pilbara Development yeah. Commission for some time. How has it sort of developed over, over the last decade or, or couple of decades? I think, you know, I've been here heading towards a decade and, and working in the region and very privileged to have had that opportunity, I guess, and came for a year and that's the Pilbara story. You come for a year and you stay. I think what I've seen, I've seen a lot of change. So we've seen a lot that the, the major centres in the Pilbara are much more livable, continued growth in, in the mining sector, we're seeing activity. More recently, the big change has been in the renewable energy sector, the clean energy sector, and out of the 170 odd billion dollars of new capital that we've chartered that's going to come into the Pilbara in the next decade, about a bit under half of that is all around clean energy and renewable energy, and we know there'll be more of those projects. So it's incredibly exciting. I think the Pilbara, it's had iron ore, it's, 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 it's got iron ore, it's got LNG, Renewable energy will be a global player again. It'll be interesting to see how that comes together. There's some very large projects for the Pilbara. So, yeah, I've seen a lot of change. Most of it's been pretty positive. You know, we, heard, we did hear today from Kate George, um, one of the Aboriginal leaders in the region, about the fact that we need, in this next growth cycle, to see more benefit to our Aboriginal people in the region. I think we all recognise that, and that's something we all really need to work for and work hard at over the next period of time. There are some really massive projects going on um, from BP, the Asia Australia Renewable Energy Hub. You've got uh, potential for green steel, the lithium hydroxide uh, processing, processing facility, plant, yeah. which a lot happening, particularly out at you know sort of, sort of Bedarri yeah. and Lumsden and all yeah. that kind of thing. Um, so, if I, I guess, can you give me a bit of a, a summary of um, some of the the highlights of what we can expect from the Pilbara over the next five, ten, twenty years? Well, uh, yeah, yeah, if I had a crystal ball, um, what we know about the Pilbara is that it's a place of big projects and it's a place where big projects happen. I guess from my perspective, we just talked about the Aboriginal people of the Pilbara benefiting more from the next, this long growth cycle that we've got. I think if you look forward, it's going to, you know, we are going to be 
much bigger in the renewable energy space and, and that, things will flow from that. So it will be, we may be exporting hydrogen, we may be producing hydrogen for our own use, we may be producing electrons to do things like green steel or other you know, energy intensive type processing um, and, and, and some of that will start to happen I think more in the Pilbara. But I also think the other one is we're going to see a much more diversified resource sector. We're seeing that now. We're seeing a lot of exploration. We've seen, um, you know, cobalt, graphite. It goes on. We're, well, look, just down the road, we're potentially going to have one of the biggest gold mines in Australia, De Grey Mining. So a more diversified economy. I'd love to think that we can continue to grow the livability. I'd love to see the communities here grow. I think there's enough people here with enough passion and enough people who come to the region and just want to invest here because they can see the opportunities that it'll become a more livable, increasingly livable place over time. We'll have more people living in the Pilbara. I can't see too many challenges that a region like this can't overcome, so I think the future's very bright. That's Terry Hill. He's the chair of the Pilbara Development Commission, also the former CEO of the PDC. He was speaking with me at the Headland Economic and Franchise Forum this week. There is a lot going on in this part of the world. It's 26 past 12. The Shire of Narragin has put together a draft policy for future wind farm development in that region. It follows concerns from some in the community about the look and noise of wind farms, as well as their possible impact on things like aerial crop spraying. Shire President Lee Ballard says the new policy will put restrictions in place beyond current guidelines, requiring developers to consult stakeholders and address community concerns. So we've had contact from a potential wind farm company who are uh, looking at going through the process to look at putting some wind turbines in the Shire. And we, as a, as a council, wanted to put together a policy from our perspective as the we don't believe the state has a, uh, a strong enough policy in place, so we thought we'd start with our own. I understand this came about after some concerns expressed by the community. Yeah, look, we've, we've had a uh, presentation to council last month in regards to some um, joining landholders. From our perspective, we didn't have this in place, so we um, we looked at putting something together. For uh, wind farm developers, um, do you think, you know, it's still fair to say they're going to be able to build the kind of projects they want as long as, long as they're um, following these rules? Yeah, I mean, that, that's what that's what the policy is about. It's about making sure that everyone is um, consulted on the process and um, providing they... They meet all the um, all the objectives of the of the policy, then um, that's fine. And I, and I don't, don't don't believe that it's onerous. It's just um, being making things very clear. So part of the policy, um, it says that uh, turbines need to to blend in with the natural landscape. Can you explain a bit more about how that would work? Uh, look, at this point in time, that that's up to the, uh, the proponents to to explain to us how they do that. Narragin Shire President Lee Ballard speaking with Jamie Tanner. WA Farmers President John Hassel is a grower within the Narragin Shire. He says he understands why some people might have concerns, but he believes farmers should have the choice to say yes to wind farms on their property. Well, the two that I'm aware of is obviously visual amenity and uh, and, and audible amenity. And, you know, if, if they're genuine concerns, fair enough, but I'm not sure they're 100% genuine concerns. You know, I have heard the people who have got wind farms or a wind tower on their farm never actually hear the vibrations from it. It's only the next door neighbours. So uh, I think also visual amenity. We don't want them crammed in, you know, in a very close, you know, space. 
you know, if they're spread out, I can't see why there's a big drama. It's the new world we're moving into. Uh, farmers should be able to benefit from the, uh, you know, the passive income that these things should provide. So, you know, as long as, uh, as, long as wind farms aren't plonked or a turbine is not plonked right in your view, I can't see why there'd be a big drama. What, if any, restrictions do you see reasonable on proposed developments? Well, I think I think the visual amenity is probably one that is reasonable. So, you know, if there's a if there's a view there, I think you know within a few k's of someone's front door, uh, and and their nice view, I think that's probably well worth considering. And you know, you wouldn't want a wind turbine drop within you know 50 metres of your house, so you can hear the winds wishing. I think that there are some reasonable things that have already been established well and truly in other states, and those guidelines could be adhered to. Our big concerns are that if a wind farm goes up and there's a, a kind of a residual after 20 years and the, the wind farm operators pull out, we, know, we want to make sure that there's a grandfathering clause in there that the farmers aren't being left with the burden of cleaning up the mess. Generally speaking, are farmers embracing wind energy as part of their business broadly in WA? Well, look, we've seen a wind farm out at, uh, out at Meriden and the people who've got those are pretty happy with them. There's one going up at Cogen up and that was uh, initiated by farmers themselves. I think there's one being looked at at Williams and that's being initiated by farmers themselves. So uh, I think there's plenty of opportunity there and there's plenty of proponents. So, uh, you know, I can't imagine anybody being too, uh, too, too anti the idea. What sort of opportunity do you see wind farms bringing moving forward? Well, there's going to be employment in the area, which I think is really important. Um, obviously, we need more housing to, to be able to house those people. But, you know, it's extra income into those areas. It provides a safety net for farmers for uh, passive income, um, probably increase the value of their land. Uh, everything that we can do to, you know, reasonably make a living without impacting on others, I think we should be allowed to do. Reckon you'll put a wind farm up on your place anytime soon, John? Well, if the proponents came out and wanted to stick two or three up on my place, I think I'd be pretty happy. Give him a president of WA Farmers and Pindley Grower, John Hassel. He was speaking with Sophie Johnson. It's 29 to 1 on the Country Hour. Let's get the latest in news headlines with Herlin Corr. Hi, Herlin. Good afternoon, Michelle. In the headlines, authorities say firefighters tackling an emergency bushfire in large parts of the city of Wanneroo in Perth's north have experienced calmer conditions overnight, but they're not expected to last. The blaze has burnt through 2,000 hectares. Ten houses have now been destroyed in the fire. A former semi-professional basketballer who claimed he was not of sound mind when he fatally bludgeoned his partner in suburban Perth has been found guilty of her murder. 32-year-old Churia Pal had argued he should not be held criminally responsible for the death of Stephanie Lee Robinson, whose body was found in a double-view house in January 2021. The Supreme Court was told after killing Ms Robinson he set the house on fire and today he was also found guilty of a charge of arson. And India has a 1-0 lead in the five-match T20 cricket series after beating Australia by two wickets in the opening match. Josh Inglis and Steve Smith were the only Australians to back up from the ODI World Cup final four days earlier as the visitors posted three for 208. More news at one o'clock. Thank you very much, Helen. This week on Landline, tea time on the Sunshine Coast. We went into the tea-making thing fairly very naively, thinking, oh, this will be easy. It certainly isn't. 
and the outback postie and power of community. Are people jealous of this mail run? Oh, I wouldn't know. <laughs> well, I would be if I was on another mail run. That's Landline, Sundays 12.30 on ABC TV and streaming on ABC iView. Let's head straight to the Bureau of Meteorology. Luke Huntington is along with you this afternoon. And all of the action really, Luke, is in the Southwest Land Division. What can we expect over the next few days? Yeah, afternoon, uh, Michelle. So, yeah, today um, we do have that um, persistent trough near the west coast at the moment. Um, it's just sort of hanging around just through the inland parts. Um, so along that trough and to the east of it, um, we are expecting some uh, showers and thunderstorms. But um, the, the showers and thunderstorms over the southwest land division today will be through the inland central west, through the inland lower west and into northern parts of the southwest districts um, and into the western Wheat Belt and Northwest Great Southern. So, but those thunderstorms are going to have pretty much next to nothing in, if any, rainfall in them. So, um, there'll be mostly dry thunderstorms. But um, with dry thunderstorms comes the risk of um, dry lightning. So, we're just watching that, just in case it does start off any new fires uh, in that area today. Um, but other other than that, it's still very hot over um, uh, through much of the Southwest Land Division today. Just apart from the the West Coast, where the temperatures have dropped back to near 30 degrees, but through the Wheat Belt, Great Southern Area, Inland, Central West, that's where we're seeing the hottest temperatures today into the high 30s. Um, and then looking um, tomorrow into the Southwest Land Division, uh, we will see a contraction of the thunderstorm activity a little bit further northwards. So um, the thunderstorm activities tomorrow will be mainly confined uh, to the Inland Central West District. Again, that'll be the afternoon, um, any afternoon thunderstorms that form through there will have little to no rainfall, so mostly dry thunderstorms in, in that area, so providing pretty much next to no relief with the temperatures. Um, and we, yeah, as with the temperatures, we are still seeing um, very hot temperatures through that Inland Central West, Wheat Belt, Great Southern, Lower West, and into the Southwest District, so temperatures getting into near 40 degrees through the parts of the wheat belt and inland central west and into the high 30s uh, elsewhere. It's a bit cooler along the south coast there where it has been um, closer to the low 20s, so Albany and Esperance area. Um, but notable feature tomorrow is we will see a return of gusty easterly winds across much of the southwest land division tomorrow, particularly for the southern half, which is not going to help with the going fire at, at Wanneroo. So that's a concern uh, for the weekend. Um, the windiest morning at this stage looks like Sunday morning. We'd have, we could have some pretty strong wind gusts in the morning period. And um, the Sunday period is when we'll see temperatures um, well, staying up near the sort of the high 30s into the 40 degrees through much of the southwest land division once again. But um, any thunderstorms would have cleared out of the southwest land division by Sunday. And then uh, the trough is still off the coast initially on Monday, uh, but it does go through, uh, through inland parts pretty early so the sea breeze will come in probably uh, during the morning period uh, but it, again we see an upper level system approaching from the west so we might see some mid-level storms uh, coming across uh, during the day and into the evening so uh, those thunderstorms again won't have uh, much rainfall associated with them um, and then into Tuesday we'll see the trough continuing to move east much cooler temperatures uh, throughout most parts of the southwest land division getting back to the, hot, uh, the mid 20s around the west coast. A lot of those thunderstorms with little to no rainfall, and it's been the case all week, well, probably for more than a week up in the, the northern and eastern forecast districts as well, hasn't it, Luke? Is there any change to that sort of forecast in the north? 
Yeah, not not today. Uh, some some parts are seeing a little bit of rainfall in in parts of the Kimberley. We've seen up to thirty millimeters in the last twenty four hours, um, and that's where the rainfall is probably going to be for today uh, through the Pilbara area. You're going to still uh, have little to no rainfall with those storms and into the interior region. Uh, as you head into tomorrow, there is a chance that thunderstorms through the Pilbara region could be uh, could have a little bit more rainfall associated with them. But definitely through the Kimberley region, we're expecting um, those higher totals to continue. Um, for the Pilbara tomorrow, it's probably unlikely you're going to get um, those thunderstorms go to the coast. So Caratha and Port Helen will stay uh, dry tomorrow um, and into the far western Pilbara. Uh, we're not expecting any thunderstorms. So probably um, west of about Paravadu, there won't be too much. Um, and then heading into Sunday, again, most of the rainfall will be into the Kimberley region, possibly into the far eastern Pilbara, but a lot of the storms through the Pilbara on Sunday will ha have little to no rainfall associated with them. And as we get into Monday, uh, those storms contract mostly to the Kimberley region, maybe in, just into the far northeastern Pilbara. And by Tuesday, uh, any storms will be over the Kimberley, uh, the interior. But we will see those uh, mid-level storms move through uh, the, the Goldfields region uh, and into eastern parts of the Gascoigne on Tuesday. Oh, well, they'll appreciate that rainfall if they can get it. Um, but it doesn't sound like there's an awful lot of good news on the cards, Luke. Uh, how about uh, warnings around the state? Yeah, so I guess the main warning we've got, um, we've had the last few days, is that heatwave warning. Um, that's for the lower west and southwest districts. Uh, the central west district has just been cancelled. Uh, and then we've just got some um, wind warnings for the south coast. Thank you very much for that, Luke. Luke Huntington from the Bureau of Meteorology. It is 21 to 1. Richard Hudson is along. And uh, yeah, well, by the sounds from what Luke has said, not a lot of rainfall today. No, it's a very similar story to the last few days. So the only rain is in the Kimberley. So Derby recorded five mils, Columbaroo 32, Kingston Rest 39, Kununurra at the airport six mils and at the Deepherd station 27, Theta 29 and Troughton Island recorded nine mils. Nowhere else in the Kimberley recorded five mils or above and nowhere in WA recorded any rainfall at all. Mm. It's my understanding there's no harvest bans currently in place for today. Tiny bit surprising because of the winds and what's going on in various locations. Just north of Perth, as you've heard in the news, lots and lots of times that bushfire is still burning. So there's an emergency warning and a watch and act still in place in the city of Wanneroo and city of Swan. There are fires burning throughout WA, though, and some of them are at an advice level. That includes uh, fires in the shires of Broome, Brookton, Pingley and Wandering, Ashburton, Murray, Noangarup and East Pilbara. Just a quick clarification too. I did mention yesterday that for any harvest bans, the only program that will read them out is the Country Hour. And so this is for harvest bans and vehicle movement bans. And the deadline to get those in to us is around about 11.30 or 11.45 at the very latest. That's not to do with total fire bans. So just to clarify that. Um, but, yeah, you must get them in prior to that time, otherwise they're not going to get read out on analogue radio. The reason that's important is if you're harvesting and you're in a paddock that's out of mobile range, then you're going to struggle to get a notification directly from your shire. 
Hey, Michelle, um, can you remember the stories we've done over the last few years about country of origin labelling for fish? So it's it's yeah. compulsory for there to be country of origin labelling in the supermarkets and where we get the, the fish when we're going to be cooking it at home. But at the moment, it's not compulsory if you're going to be eating out in a restaurant or in a cafe. Yeah, I feel like the industry talks about it a lot on, on World Barra Day. That's often when I hear the, the argument pop up. Well, I believe state and federal consumer affairs ministers had a meeting of some sort this morning to vote on compulsory country of origin labelling of fish in all hospitality venues. WA's minister who looks after this sort of thing is our, our commerce minister, Sue Ellery, who's actually in Caratha at the moment. Minister, thanks for your time in the Country Hour. Just wondering if I've got that accurate. Was there a meeting discussing that? There was, and I participated in it online, Richard, uh, via Caratha, where I've been doing some other stuff today. So you're quite right. We've had it in retail for a while now, but industry has been pushing for it to be a greater transparency, I guess, on menus in hospitality settings. And consumer protection ministers from around Australia uh, today voted to require... Uh, that on menus we'll need to see whether a particular seafood dish is uh, of Australian, imported or mixed origin. So that's AIM, Australian, imported or mixed origin. We think that's a relatively simple way. Um, What we've agreed is that that's what we'll do. That's the model that we'll adopt. There'll be work now done between jurisdictions and with industry on what sort of transition we put in place. So it's not going to happen from tomorrow. We need to work with industry. Much of hospitality is, of course, small business. We want to make sure that we do it in a way that gives them time to understand what the obligations are, time to understand and work out what's the best way uh, for them to be able to do it on their menus. Um, So I expect there'll be a transition period, probably something around 12 months, uh, and then even a, a, a period beyond that, Richard, where we'd look at making sure we were doing education rather than kind of uh, bringing down the big stick on people. So the vote was held. Was it unanimous? Was everyone in agreement that this needs to be introduced? Yes, it was. So this was um, initiated by the federal government. It was one of their election commitments. Um, So they've been driving it. There have been public consultation uh, earlier this year. I've certainly been lobbied by the seafood industry about it and uh, had conversations with Australian Hospitality Association as well, who represent uh, the kind of restaurant, cafe, uh, pub, um, food service. Um, so the gen- everybody supported it. Uh, the hard work begins now on making sure that we get the implementation right. We don't want to create something that is really so hard um, for small businesses to operate. But we do know consumers want greater transparency uh, about where their seafood comes from when they order something off the menu. You mentioned election commitments. This was actually an election commitment in the lead up to the state election back in 2017. Uh, The exact wording was a McGowan Labor government will introduce country of origin labelling requirements for seafood sold in restaurants. Why has it taken six years? That's a good question. I mean, it it uh, has been a point of some contention, mainly because the restaurant industry is made up of lots and lots of small businesses. So getting agreement on a model, and this one is a fairly simple model. So getting agreement on a model, what's gonna be easy for consumers to understand and not too onerous for restaurants to be able to change their menu, you know, sometimes on a daily uh, on a daily basis. So it has taken a while, um, but I'm pleased to say we've all agreed to do it today. 
Are you expecting some opposition from the owners of some cafes and restaurants? Obviously, at the moment, things are getting more and more expensive and it's harder and harder for some of us to be making ends meet. Keeping costs down is obviously a priority. And if we're labelling to say that fish is actually caught here in Western Australia, often that fish is more expensive. So if you're actually being honest as a restaurant saying, well, hey, our, che- our, our seafood is a bit cheaper, but it is imported, are you expecting some flack? I think um, the level of consultation has been such that we've said industry, and by that I mean the small business industry of who runs restaurants, need to be involved in how we implement this. But equally, I think the model takes into account of that. And consumers have been saying for a considerable period of time, they want more transparency. So they want to make the choice about whether they're prepared to spend uh, the extra money or not. Um, And I think this model is one that is workable for small business, gives greater transparency to the consumers and supports local industry as well. I'm sure Daryl Hockey from the WA Fishing Industry Council will be happy. He's actually attending a conference uh, right now, so I wasn't able to have a quick chat to him, but they certainly have been lobbying for a fair while. Minister, would it be fair to say the the detail of exactly how this is going to unravel is still to be determined because you've only just had this meeting? Yes, that is literally true and quite deliberately true because we do want to work on what is an appropriate transition period and we do want to work with uh, industry about uh, how we do it in a way that is workable for them. Well, at least there'll be some transparency. Let's just hope people read those labels anyway so they, they know exactly what they're getting. <laughs> for sure. Thanks for your time in the country, yeah. My pleasure. Thank you, Richard. Sue Ellery, who's the Minister for Commerce here in Western Australia, and that particular portfolio handles consumer affairs and As I mentioned, each of the ministers in the states, territory and federal had just stepped out of a meeting moments ago, literally. Uh, It was scheduled to finish at one, so we're lucky to speak to the minister. And, uh, yeah, just recapping that they have voted unanimously in favour of compulsory country of origin labelling of fish, not only in the supermarkets but also in hospitality venues. That's the bit that was missing right up until now. Yeah, that's a really interesting. It'll be interesting to see um, the fallout from that. Thank you so much, Richard, for bringing us that very breaking news on the Country Hour. It's 13 minutes to one. Michelle Stanley along with you. As a long, hot summer approaches, one bushfire brigade on WA's southeast coast heads into the season without a clear place to get water. A series of inexplicable government decisions have rendered a purpose-built dam near Munglanup virtually unusable to firefighters and the community wants an explanation. Tara DeLangraft is our rural and resources reporter in Esperance. It's 110 kilometres east of Munglanup. Tara, can you explain what's going on here? Hi, Michelle. So it's a little tricky to understand, but basically around 15 years ago, a dam was built near Munglanup for the purposes of firefighting and emergency stock water, but it's never been used. Until recently, there's been restricted access to the site and the community, it's a bit fed up with having an asset there that they can see, but they can't use. Tara, it sounds like there's a a bit more to this story. Yeah, you're right, Michelle, there is. Uh, Now, look, some 
bits are a little bit hazy. Uh, we've been speaking to the local brigade captain and farmer, Pete Kirshner, who says about 15 years ago he applied for and received a grant to build a dam as well as some permanent tanks and all of the infrastructure to get the water out of the dam. So we're talking solar panels, pumps, pipes. And that grant was for around $120,000. Now, we haven't been able to confirm exactly when this grant took place or who it was from. Pete believes it was the federal government and that $120,000 should have covered the cost of the entire project. Pete then says the Shire of Ravensthorpe built the dam. However, it wasn't on the original site that they wanted. The original site that was located was next to CBH land, um, but the Shire was not prepared to buy the land off the existing landowner at the time, so a new site was uh, selected by the Shire, and unfortunately, unknown to the locals, the site selected was located on Department of Water-owned land. The dam was built, and that same year, the Department of Water have denied access to farmers, uh, so no solar pump or tank were installed as per the federal government grant, and the Shire have also uh, kept the remaining money from that grant. Does that also mean, Pete, that you haven't been able to use the water? Yeah, that, that's correct. Um, we, we've been denied access. Um, so the dam currently sits there and it's full of water and up until the last four weeks, we've been unable to use that for the last 15 years, yes. Mungalanup farmer Pete Kirshner there. So Tara, Pete alluded to something that happened, was something happening a few weeks ago. Can you fill us in? Okay, so here's where things get a little bit strange. Now, until recently, access to the dam was restricted because the dam was on Water Corporation land and it was built next to the town drinking water. So there were concerns about contamination. However, in 2020... The town water no longer met drinking water standards, meaning since then water's been trucked into the small community from here where I am in Esperance around two to four times a week for human consumption. So given there was no longer a risk to the catchment, Mr Kirshner says the Water Corporation gave farmers the ability to use the dam last month. But the Water Corporation is now investigating how the dam came to be built on their land to start with. Okay, so I mean, what's the big deal about this dam, Tara? Obviously, farmers have been using water to fight fires some other way for the past 15 years. Can't they just continue to do that? Yeah, look, absolutely they can. So as you say, the last few decades, farmers have used water from privately owned dams to fight fires. However, sometimes it's a little bit tricky to access that water. Um, the local brigade has a WhatsApp, as many do these days. So if there's a fire, they can speak with other farmers about where the closest water is. But given the Mungalanup area, there's some pretty sandy soil there and obviously a lot of those dams are on farm tracks and some of the trucks that want to access the water are pretty big. It, it can be pretty limiting to access that water. That's why Mr Kirshner says he applied for the grant to begin with. Now, community water supplies for firefighting, they're pretty commonplace right around the state, Michelle, and the local community here is pretty proactive. Uh, in fact, Mr Kirshner himself personally paid over $50,000 to upgrade an airstrip on his property so that water bombers could land and refill after he saw the devastation of the Esperance bushfires eight years ago. And he says with farmer dam water really low in his neck of the woods this summer, it makes him pretty nervous. Um, basically, this water 
uh, is essential for firefighting purposes, um, emergency stock water and uh, run-of-the-mill water for uh, you know people that are in desperate need because this year especially we haven't had much runoff. It's definitely a concern. So the big key dam or emergency solution would, would be a massive benefit, especially if you just pull up and you've got all the fittings and everything there ready to go, would you know you could fill quite quickly. And I would like to see some closure on this um, and having a, a permanent emergency water solution. Um, but at this stage, uh, we don't have one, so we're still relying on farmers. Just can't believe it's just taking this long, you know. Tara, farmers like Pete Kirshner now have access to this dam. So why are they still concerned? Mm. So, Michelle, the dam is pretty big. Uh, When I went to take a look at it with Pete, he described just how many hoses you'd need to get the water out of the dam, up and over the banks and, you know, over the other side to fill trucks. Then, of course, you need the pumps and other temporary infrastructure to physically get the water out of the dam. So there's no doubt that they could absolutely do that this season. But if something temporary was left there, it, of course, could be open to theft. So that's why Pete said that they were trying to get a permanent solution to start with, so those tanks. Unfortunately, the land lies within a registered cultural heritage site uh, and ministerial approval would be required to actually put tanks on it, uh, which is, as we understand, a process that could take a very long time. Now, the Esperance Dalarac Native Title Corporation has said that while they don't have the power to waive compliance with the law, they have suggested another site, which is only a few metres away from the proposed location, but it's outside that culturally registered site, which could be used to erect the tanks. Michelle, I should also point out that we've attempted to ask the Shire of Ravensthorpe a number of questions about the situation. However, their CEO didn't answer our specific questions. So Pete Kirshner says he'll just continue to push for a resolution that'll hopefully keep his community safe because he's not prepared to cut his losses just yet. Yeah, I have considered that possibility, but it would be good to, you know, to see a finished project, I suppose. Um, I think the right thing to do um, would be for Department of Water to, to give a site back to the Raby Shire so it can be maintained and managed properly and we can have a permanent solution for emergency water going into the future. In, in times where you've got low rainfall and runoff and water supply shortages uh, are an issue and you've also got high fuel loads from stubble retention and large areas of bush right alongside, there's really no better time to find a permanent solution than now. Munglenup farmer Pete Kirshner there and Tara Delangra, thanks for filling us in on, on that rather perplexing situation. You're welcome, Michelle. And a Water Corporation spokesperson has said that ongoing discussions are happening around access and infrastructure into the future. If you want to find out more, there is a story online. Just head to the ABC News website. A couple of minutes away from one, a text in from Michael in Esperance. We were speaking earlier about wind turbines and a decision, well, a draft policy put together by the Shire of Narragin for future wind farms 
farm development in that region. Michael says John Hassel is wrong on wind turbines. They're getting subsidised by 500 to 600,000 per year, and yet farmers are only being offered 30,000 a year. If there were no subsidies, they wouldn't get off the ground. As it's such, as such, it is just a Ponzi scheme. Hence, they should not be advocated for. Please do better, John. That from Michael. I wonder if you agree. You can get in touch. 0488-0448-922604. Well, the wool market ended up again this week. The Eastern Market Indicator up 19 cents to close at 11.70 cents a kilo clean. And the Western Market Indicator up 22 cents to finish at 1316 cents a kilo clean. Danny Burkett, what happened this week? We had another two very good days in the wool market, both Tuesday and the Wednesday. But through all three centres, we had rises on both days. In Fremantle, that reflected 45 clean deer for 18 micron, closing at 1585. 19s were up 35. Over the two days, they were 1460 on the close. 20 microns, 21s, 22 microns, all up 20 cents clean. 10 days the first, 10 days the second. 13.75 finished 20 microns for the week, 21s 13.50 and 22s $13 flat. Pieces and bellies over the two days, the fine end up 40, the mediums up 25. And for the first two weeks in a row, for a long time, we had a very stable carding market, albeit at a lower level. But locks only moved five cents upwards for the week. Crutchings remain firm, stains remain firm and lambs remain firm. So as I said, that's the first time in a long time we've seen the oddment market remain firm over those two two weeks. So that's a that's a positive at that end of the market. Just looking at the VM that started to creep back into the market last week, that has subsided somewhat this week. Roughly half the wool, half the combing merino wool on the market has less than 1% VM in it, and obviously the other half has over 1%. Just another couple of quick interesting facts. If we look at Fremantle last week, less than 1% of the merino combing wool passed in. This week, only 2%. So normally, as we lead the state and the lead the country in the past ins, that has not been the case in the last fortnight. And as I said, because the rises were over both days, Fremantle has roughly closed gear across all the other centres um, for roughly the third week in a row. So another very good thing is centre of the universe for wool in Fremantle wool market. <laughs> very interesting statistics. Um, who were the buyers, Danny? No surprise. This week, tech wool trading in the uh, fleece wool took 18.5% of merino combing wool. PJ Morris, the West Australian-based company, 15% in Devil Wool Exports, 12 And Mellower, who was second biggest buyer last week, were there at fourth and 10 with 10%. Uh, also, tech wool, second largest buyer in the crossbreds, second largest buyer in the skirtings, and second largest buyer in the oddments. And what's on for next week? Next week, 49,134 bales on the market. That is the official quote between the three centres, although Sydney is a super fine sale. So I'd normally say that volume would start to certainly test the market. But uh, Fremantle just under 9,000. So just given the way the market's finished again on, on, on Wednesday in Fremantle, it all bodes very well. Thank you very much, Danny. We'll catch you next Friday. Uh, heading off to the news very shortly, but first a text in from Neil in Boy Up Brook. We started the program talking about Meat and Livestock Australia and uh, some of the 
challenges but also the opportunities for the market. Neil in Boyup Brook says there are thousands of beef and sheep producers who do not have any say where their levy money is spent. $97 million was collected last year by MLA. The question must be asked why there are 20 directors on the board. Where is the accountability and transparency? Thank you for that, Neil. Lovely to have you along for the Country Hour this afternoon. I'm Michelle Stanley. I'll catch you next time. It's one o'clock. You've been listening to an ABC podcast. Discover more great ABC podcasts, live radio and exclusives on the ABC Listen app.